Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by bowlandbranch.com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores are charging. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off your order, plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash momanddad. And by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes complete with step-by-step instructions that are designed to take around 30 minutes. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter mom and dad when you subscribe. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 21st, the worst time for your milk to come in edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, seven, Sam, happy birthday, Sam, five, and Wally, two. Happy birthday, Sam. Woo. I am Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is 10, and Harper, who's eight. On today's show, we'll talk to a former elementary school teacher about iPads and other technology in the classroom. Then, two new moms with two newborn babies will join us, only there's a twist. The new moms are a married couple. Each got pregnant at the same time, and they delivered within a few days of each other. It's crazy and awesome, and we can't wait to talk to them. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, a listener call about kid birthday parties, and for our Slate Plus segment, Slate's brand new president who is also a brand new parent, will join us with a special presidential triumph or fail. But before we get to all that, Dan, please announce things. Yes. Humans of New York, come to Brooklyn next week for our first ever New York City live show. Our list of celebrity guests at this show is insane. We have the first lady of the city of New York and general badass Charlene McRae. We have a roundtable about creating art for kids with three, count them, three big stars, musician Lori Berkner, Oliver Jeffers, the author of The Day the Crayons Quit, and Rebecca Stead, the Newbery-winning author of When You Reach Me, which I should just add is Lyra's all-time favorite book. Plus, we have Allison's husband, John, who will join us for audience questions and probably say something reprehensible. Plus, we have games, jokes, triumphs, fails, general tomfoolery. It'll be great. It's Tuesday, January 26th. 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. And please join us for the cocktail hour beforehand so you can understand why I seem so drunk later on stage. Also, please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Listen, we're on to you. We get stats on our show every so often, and it is a fact that we have many more listeners than we do Facebook likes. What is up with that? 
I know. We will not rest until they're the exact same number. Unless you are hate listening to us, please like our Facebook page. Or even if you're hate listening to us, hate like our Facebook page. Uh, It helps us get the word out about the show, which in turn helps Dan sell more weird card games, which is what this is all about anyway. That's right. Ace of Hates at aceofhates.com. Okay. On to Triumphs and Fails. Dan, I want you to go first. But before you go, I meant to ask you this last episode. I wanted to follow up on a triumph you claimed late last year before you had even executed it. That whole one gift <laughs> oh, rule shit. for Christmas. Oh, yeah. How did that go? Explain, <laughs> remind listeners what it was yes. and then how did it go. Okay, so I I wanted to institute this year and told people that we were instituting this year in our family a one gift rule for the kids. That instead of just like buying like every pack of candy or shitty toy or whatever you see for the three months preceding Christmas and then wrapping them all up and giving us a Christmas that takes like seven hours to execute. I asked everyone to just like choose one thing that you want to give a kid, give that thing to the kid and let's let that be the present and let's not make Christmas into like such a crazy obscene extravaganza as it has been in other years. And your triumph um, at the time when you talked about this was just making just that like, plan. Right. Making that plan and delivering it to people in my family and like being steadfast when they Resisted. Um, I'm happy to say that I remain steadfast in delivering that plan, even when people question it. And I'm sad to say that it didn't matter. They just bought as many presents as they wanted. <laughs> so your so we still triumphed. had, and in a way, my daughter's triumphed. And I really super failed because we just got them like a very limited number of presents. But so then we were the ones Wait, who just a like, limited number of presents or one we present. Got, Santa got them one and we got them one. That is you broke your own rule, man. What are Santa and me are totally different people, Allison. Santa is a jolly fat man who lives at the North Pole. And you live in Virginia. Uh, and I live in Arlington, Virginia. <laughs> Sorry, you just really opened yourself up for that. Shit. Uh, yeah, I teed that up. So anyways, it didn't work. It didn't work. We're gonna try again next year. Okay. Next year. What do you fail have, again. What do you have for us this week? Uh, I have a fail this week, um, a real fail, not a thing that I say is a triumph that just later turns out to be a fail. Uh, my fail is that I forgot my niece's birthday. I just straight up forgot it. I had it on my calendar, um, but on the actual day, I just didn't look at my calendar. I completely forgot it. We didn't call her. I didn't send her anything, and I feel super shitty about it. But I sort of I feel more shitty about the greater fail which is that I am always the guy who forgets stuff like this, even though I like have calendar reminders and I like send myself emails a week ahead of time saying, don't forget, blah, blah, blah. But I, like, I'm just bad at that, and I have ended up sort of outsourcing keeping track of things like this to Google Calendar and also upsettingly and gender normatively to my wife. I've, I've become like that husband. If she doesn't happen to say, like, hey, Dan, Violet's birthday is next week, I never remember to do anything in advance. So I'm going to try and do better. Uh, anyone with tips for how not to be that husband, please post them to our Facebook page. I'm actually terrible terrible at this, too. Do you guys divide up? Do you say, like, if it's your, if it's on your side of the family, you're in charge, and if it's on her side of the family, she's in charge? Theoretically, yes, though practically it ends up with her being like, Dan, did you get something for Violet's birthday? Yeah. Yeah. We called her the day after her birthday, and we all sang to her. And um, and then I gave Harper the phone to talk to her, um, and Harper seems like she's going to end up exactly like me because I was listening to the phone conversation, and I heard Harper say, Violet, how old are you now? And then there was this pause, and then she goes, that's how old I am. 
I have to assume that my brother and his wife were unimpressed by the whole thing. How about you? Uh, okay, I have a triumph. Uh, a triumph that many of you might consider a fail, but it's not. It is a caving, it's a caving into the whims of my children triumph. It is a not sticking to my guns and instead spoiling my kids triumph. Uh, several weeks ago, I asked Sam what he wanted to do for his fifth birthday party. Have it at a party place, at our house, have a theme, what? And he ver- he knew the answer. He said he wanted to have everyone from his class at our house for a treasure hunt party. And I said, great. I don't know exactly what that means, but fine, great. That is the theme. Uh, I sent out invitations saying, come to Sam's birthday party. We're going to have a treasure hunt. As the day of the party got closer, I ordered a bunch of treasure hunt crap from Amazon for the gift bags. And I figured out what the treasure slash scavenger hunt would look like. And then, like, a week before the party, Sam declared that he wanted to have a Star Wars party. And he, he actually didn't declare that he wanted to have a Star Wars party. He just started telling people that he was having a Star Wars party when he was, like, <laughs> Skyping with my parents. And they're like, what are you doing for your birthday? And he just said, I'm having a Star Wars party. And I was like, what? No, no, you're not. Very uh, clever, Sam. Yes. I told him we had already sent out the invite, and he has no respect for paperless posts, apparently. Um, and I kept sort of reminding him that, no, Sam, we're not having a Star Wars party. You wanted a treasure hunt party, and that's what we're having. But he, he was just, like, insistent. So instead of putting up a fight to keep his party's theme pure, I still used all the crap that I ordered from Amazon. We still had a treasure hunt. But I also bought a bunch of Star Wars paper plates and cups, and I ordered a Force Awakens cake. And I made the treasure, at the end of the treasure hunt, a BB-8 pinata. And I think it was a very successful Star Wars treasure hunt party. So that the is my The one-second video that you posted to Facebook made it seem <laughs> That great. was a fail. That was a fail. I thought I was videoing everyone <laughs> singing happy birthday to him, and I had never pressed on. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I hassled you about this when you told me about it originally. I was like, you've got to stick to your guns. But I'm wrong. You're right. That's a triumph. Like, there's – who cares? Right. You used care. the shit that you bought. You didn't waste a bunch of money. You made him happy. It wasn't that much more work. You had a great party. Great job. Literally, my th- thought process was like, how am I going to explain this to the other parents when they walk in and they see all the Star Wars stuff, but they thought it was a treasure <laughs> hunt party? And then I was like, wait, why do I care? They're not going to. Like, that is a ridiculous thing. Let's just do both. Uh, okay, moving on. All right. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by Bull and Branch. Uh, I woke up in kind of a bad mood this morning. Um, for sometimes in the morning when I'm in a bad mood, I have, I have like that, that thing you do where you somehow magically transfer your bad mood to your children because you're such a jerk to them. Um, and I, I tried not to do that this morning. I tried to do it by, uh, by giving compliments. I tried to, when I was about to say something like really rude, I would instead give them a compliment, even if it was through gritted teeth and it totally worked. I recommend it. But one of the reasons I was in a bad mood was that I went to bed really, really late and I didn't get enough sleep. And it reminded me that for many parents, sleep is basically the difference between a productive day where you are good at the things you do, including parenting, and a total disaster shit show of a day. So parents take sleep really seriously. So you should get your sheets from a company that also takes sleep seriously. Bolandbranch.com, that's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H dot com, sells really, really great organic cotton sheets for really, really, really competitive prices because they cut out the middleman. They send them straight to you, and you get to try them out risk-free for 30 nights. That's right. You sleep on them. You sleep on them for 29 nights, and you're like, ah, I don't like them. You send it back, and Bull and Branch gives you your money back. 
And if you order right now, Bolin Branch will give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Just go to BolinBranch.com and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D. Once again, BolinBranch.com, B-O-L-L, like a cotton bowl. So please check it out. And thanks, Bolin Branch. All right, let's move on to our first segment. As we have discussed on this show before, Allison, in our house, we spend like 75% of our time arguing with our kids about screen time. So I have not been thrilled this school year to find that both my kids now have, as part of a new program, iPads that they bring to and from school every day. They do homework on their iPads. They make movies in the classroom. They have a bunch of sort of educational-ish apps that they are encouraged to play. But I was worried that now that they had this, like, additional screen in their lives with the school's seal of approval on it, that we would have even more arguments about screen time. But I thought, look, the school is behind it. The teachers are behind it. Surely it has value in the classroom that makes it worth whatever annoyance it causes us. So I was very interested to read a piece in the Washington Post a few weeks ago by Lana Hall, who's a former third grade teacher whose class last year was in an iPad pilot program. Her essay really opened my eyes about the ways that iPads affect the classroom environment. It's called I Gave My Students iPads, Then Wished I Could Take Them Back. And Lana joins us now by phone. Hi, Lana. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on today. So you write in the piece that the first time you, that you started to get nervous about the effects of having these iPads in your classroom when you realized that the classroom was completely quiet as they used them. And that line made me laugh, but it also made me wonder, like, so what's wrong with a quiet classroom? What, what, does, that, what does that represent to a teacher, to an experienced teacher? Good question. Because I think at first glance, a quiet classroom can look like an engaged classroom but I think that term engagement is sometimes confused with being glazed by a screen. And I think that's what we're witnessing when we put young children, all of them together, on screens. And it really looks like something out of a futuristic dystopian novel to see a bunch of very little kids. I taught eight-year-olds maybe waiting for the bus, lined up in the hallway, and instead of talking to each other and having the little conversations that they have and tying their shoes and looking around them and making noise the way we all envision eight-year-old kids doing, they would all be lined up silently, tap, tap, swipe. And I just thought, this is not what I envisioned getting into education to foster. Sorry, to play devil's advocate, though, I guess the question is, it's not what you envisioned, and I, it's also sort of not what I envisioned. It's not what I think of a classroom as looking like. But what do you think they're they're truly missing out on? What kinds of things should they be getting out of a classroom environment that does have that atmosphere that they're not getting? How do you know that it's not, that it's not like better for them to just be doing these educational apps all the time than being in a loud classroom? Right, and that's a great question because they are certainly getting something. They're educational apps, and they will drill discrete um, skills, and they'll work on their proficiency with using tablets, and those are good things. There's, the people who roll out these programs aren't crazy. There's definitely benefits to having iPads, but we need to look more carefully when we're rolling them out for young children. And I think early childhood educators in particular are very 
in tune to this because this is very ingrained in our training as early childhood educators that we look at the whole child. We're not just looking at how to improve test scores and how to deliver a discrete set of skills to young children. We're looking at their whole development and growth because they're still really little. They're still just experiencing the world for the first time. The people who develop these iPad you know, pilot programs, the, the idea is not for kids to be all day just on the iPad swiping and tapping. Um, I would assume that the idea is that to use these to then foster some sort of also, like there's child to iPad learning and then, there, and then there's also like using it to foster collaboration and actual like tactile learning. Is that the case and it's just so hard to execute or is that not really the case and, and there isn't a lot of support for figuring out how to sort of meld the two? No, that's a great point. And we were very strict with their usage in our third grade classrooms because of just exactly what you point out, that you you need to put very close parameters on it in order to make sure that you're developing a range of skills. So we got good at that in school of, um, of like only having a third of them take out their iPads at one time so that you could foster small group collaboration and so forth. So we, we figured out ways to maximize conversation. I mean, did you hear from parents who really were having problems with it, or am I just like the one who can't get on board? No, that parents are definitely having problems with it. And, you know, it's interesting to me, too, that I taught in a Title I school, and so the families I had the opportunity to serve sometimes felt empowered to push back and ask questions about what we were doing in the classroom, but often didn't have the experience with the American school system or maybe the fluency in English to feel comfortable pushing back on issues like this. And so I didn't hear as much from them as I think some of my colleagues teaching in the non-Title I schools in my district did experience. And I've actually uh, heard from a friend of mine whose school did a one-to-one in my same district, but it wasn't a Title I school, that they... um, actually pushed back to the point where the school keeps the iPads at school. They don't send them home anymore. That makes sense to me. It makes sense to me not to send them home, and also it makes sense to me not to let the kids have them in the hallway when they're, like, you know, standing in line or waiting for the bus. I'm curious, when is the age that you think iPads or other devices should be introduced? Is there a sweet spot for this? Is there a place when, like, you think the kids are socialized enough or are you know, sort of have had enough hands-on experience that then these, or do you actually feel like this stuff never belongs in the classroom? That's a great question. I think really cool things can happen with iPads, which I saw myself and wrote about in the article. We did some cool projects. There's some things that are worthwhile with them. It's their omnipresence that I want to push back against. And it's pushing them down to primary grades. And, And in some school districts, they're rolling them out as little as kindergarten and first grade. In my school district, it currently, it goes down to second grade. So I think for sure we need to reconsider pushing them down to primary grade because this is where kids are experiencing the world for the first time. Yeah, and it feels to me, I mean, the impression I have gotten in reading about this is that in high school, for example, there are huge benefits to having technology available to students and having a lot of that schoolwork revolve in some way around technology. And a lot of it has to do with the notion that 
okay, high school is when you're really starting to teach them the tools that they're going to be using in future jobs, whatever those jobs may be. But by then, hopefully, presumably, they've sort of built that larger suite of skills and knowledge that you build in elementary and middle school by doing things and working with things with your hands uh, and in social situations and learning not only how to do the work, but how to be a person in that environment, which seems to be the kinds of stuff that gets lost with these with tablets in the classroom. All right. Thank you very much, Lana. We really appreciate you coming in. The article is in The Washington Post. It's called, I Gave My Students iPads and Wished I Could Take Them Back. We'll have a link to it on our Facebook page and on our show page. Thank you so much, Lana, for coming in. Hey, it was my great pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. All right, listeners, please tell us what you think. Am I being totally stupid? Do you love the tablets that your kids use? Do your kids not have the tablets in your school, but you really think that would make their educational environment way better? Uh, respond at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. All right, next up, Allison. Mom and Dad are Fighting is also brought to you by Club W. Okay, I do not enjoy shopping for wine. First, there's the whole pretending to know what you're looking for in the wine shop. You know that whole, like, there's like a certain walk and a certain look on your face that you know what you're looking for, but you really don't. And then, then you're there's... like, oh, I'm in front of the, the like, right. Chablis section. Right. And sometimes when you look inside the bottle, you can't really tell if it's red or white. Anyway, then there's the asking <laughs> for help in a way that makes it seem like you know what you're talking about. Then there's the getting it home, opening it up, pouring it, and not knowing if it's turned or if it's supposed to taste like dirt because you somehow agree that you like earthy wine. So avoid this whole nightmare with Club W, a new wine club that sends you wine directly to your door, saving you all those awkward interactions in your local wine store and allowing you to be a true shut-in, but with wine. Club W's easy six-question quiz figures out your palate, so every bottle you receive is tailored to your tastes. Club W works directly with vineyards to cut out the middlemen, which saves you money. Club W even offers a no-risk guarantee that you'll love what they send you. And right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash mom and dad. All right, moving on to our listener call. Each week, we take a listener question and try to answer it. Got questions? Call us at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, what Dan is to his nieces and nephews when it's their birthdays. Correct. Uh, this week, we have a call from Julia in New York. Hi, Dan and Allison. This is Julia in New York, a longtime listener and also your colleague and boss. Um, so, birthday parties. My kids are turning three this year. They just started preschool. My next 12 weekends are booked with parties for three-year-olds. We went to our first one. There was a live reptile show. I saw an alligator. I got to pet a boa constrictor. It was mayhem. Um, but I don't want or intend to throw a birthday party for children for at least three more years. When do you have to start throwing birthday parties for kids? Uh, when do your kids start caring? And do your fellow parents care if I just keep it family this year. Thanks for your answer. Bye. Those are great questions, Julia. Allison is someone who just hosted a fabulously successful birthday party for a five-year-old. What do you think? I think it gets younger with each uh, with each younger kid. Like the first one, it depends how many kids you have, but like for us, the first one, I think we postponed Harry's as long as possible and also did the whole like no gifts, please, for as long as possible, which... For him was probably actually not that long, probably four, 
uh, when we started having real parties. But also, but those were also just like in our house parties, not like rent out a space party. Then they have, if they have younger siblings, those siblings see their older siblings have a real party and get gifts, and then they understandably want that too. So I think it gets harder to like to keep pushing it off. I don't know, Julia. Why do you hate birthday parties? Yeah. Why do you hate birthday parties? (laughs) What the hell is your problem? I think once your kids are in school and they have a bunch of friends, it's, you know, you don't have to. But I think four is a good age to start the birthday party. If you said you don't want to do it for at least three more years, that's six. First grade. Don't deny your children birthday parties until first grade, Julia. What is childhood for? Kids really, really, really like birthday parties. They really like birthdays. Birthdays are unbelievably important to kids, way more than they ever mean to any adult. Like they want it, they look forward to them for months. They want to talk about them all the time. They care when your birthday is. No, I, I don't even care when my own birthday is. But like it really matters to them. And I guess to, to answer one of your questions, Julia, how do I know when my kids really care about it? Your kids will definitely tell you that they really care about it. Like that won't be a secret, I don't think. I do think that at the age of three, you don't have to give over every weekend to other kids' birthday parties. That's the age when you have to come along. You can't just drop them off, and that can be a hassle. So the other parents are not going to be upset if you RSVP no to some of their birthday parties. They will be secretly relieved because they will save money. Um, So go ahead and do that. Go to three of the 12 if that's what you want to do. But if your kid wants a birthday party, throw your kid a birthday party and enjoy how happy it makes them even though it is a pain in your ass. Also, there are certain things you can do. Like, I mean, schools have different rules. So some schools say you have to invite the whole class, and that can make it, you know, bigger and more complicated and more expensive and more difficult. But you can do, if if your school doesn't have that rule, you can invite, like, you know, four kids to watch a movie and have cake, and that's not a big deal. You can also try to be the trailblazer. I like to be this person. Be the trailblazer in your class to be the first one to say drop off. It's okay to drop your kids off. That makes things a little harder for you to have to deal with all those kids on your own, but hopefully that gets the ball rolling because, really, kids can, get, you know, be dropped off at these parties around four, I think. So yes, I agree. That's awesome. Like, yes, you have to take it. You take one for the team, but then you have all these weekends, especially you with twins, same age, same parties probably. They're going to, you know, both, no one's going to split them up. Everyone's going to invite both of them, even if they really right. only want one. Uh, <laughs> we all know which one it's going to be, too. That one, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Then you get to have like a two hour span to yourself on the weekends. Yeah, you got to embrace the things that birthday parties deliver you instead of complaining about how you got to go to a three year old's birthday party. Please stop complaining, you- Julia. You got to suck it up. All right. Now that we have both ensured our future firedness, uh, good job, Allison. If you have a question for us, give us a call, 424-255-7833. Dan, did I read that script that you wrote for me okay? Yes. Yes. Good job. You just wanted to be so nice to her, but I was like, we can't. We can't show favoritism to our boss. We have to tell her she's being the worst. All right. Let's move on. Mom and Dad are Fighting is also brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Every week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take about 30 minutes to cook. They source the fresh ingredients from farms nationwide and tell you where they're getting their ingredients from, and they deliver them to you measured to the exact quantities you need so there's no food waste. And you get to go to their website and choose from extremely delicious looking recipes like for example if you sign up right now 
You could choose from oven-roasted chicken with winter vegetables and lemon thyme sauce, Swiss chard and wild mushroom penne with chili and parmesan, and a really, really sweet-looking pork and apple burger with rosemary potatoes. Anyways, they have all this food on the website. You pick the ones you want. They have vegetarian options. They have family options. They send them to you ready to cook. You cook them, and you have a meal for that evening in 30 minutes or less. It's called HelloFresh, and you can get $35 off your first week of deliveries by visiting HelloFresh.com and entering the promo code MOMANDDAD when you subscribe. That's 35 bucks off the first week. HelloFresh.com, promo code MOMANDDAD. All right, let's move on to segment two. Since starting the show, Dan and I have talked to several new parents. We've talked to a new single mom with her newborn baby squawking in the background. We've talked to several new dads about their early triumphs and fails. We've talked to a new mom just back from maternity leave. But we've never talked to two women who both delivered babies within a few days of each other and are also a married couple. And that ends today. New mom Kate Alasgi and her wife Emily Kay recently spoke with New York Magazine about their experience of both being pregnant at the same time. And you guys should definitely go read the resulting piece. My wife and I are both pregnant. They are joining us on the phone from New Jersey today. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. So describe for us the scene at your house right now. Um, well, we chose to chose to sit in a room that we thought would be the less least stimulating. We have Eddie with us. Um, and he's wide awake, even though we tried to time it so that he could be possibly nursing or sleeping. Um, but right now we're surrounded by two of everything, basically yeah. two car seats, two bassinets, two bouncing chairs. You know, ev- everything is just pretty much chaos in the house. <laughs> and how old is Eddie and how old is Eddie's brother? Um, well, they're, so they're 40s apart. I, uh, God, I'm so terrible at knowing what the days are. He's... They're 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 a little over six weeks old each. So um, Reed is almost seven weeks, and Eddie is about six and a half weeks. So for listeners who haven't read the New York Magazine piece, we'll link to it on our Facebook page, and it's really great. But give us the highlights of what the heck happened to you guys. <laughs> so okay, in a, in a nutshell, you know, uh, Emily and I got married a couple years ago, and we knew that we wanted to have children, and um, we went to Cornell to fertility, um, to see a fertility doctor. And, um, you know, basically I thought, oh, this is great. We have we have two of everything. You know, we have two women here trying to get pregnant. And the doctor was like, oh, we generally, you know, she didn't actually say this, but she certainly looked at Emily being the youngest and said, I think we should start with Emily. And then I sort of felt very competitive at that moment and felt like, well, I think I could start trying as well. Being older, I, I started... Um, IUI process, and six months later, was we weren't successful. The last thing I wanted to try was an IVF treatment, and at the same time, our doctor suggested that Emily start because we thought maybe Emily would have a hard time as well. For some reason, we were impatient, <laughs> so we 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 had one month where we overlapped, and um, that one month of overlaps turned to be successful for both of us, and we both ended up being pregnant. That was the jackpot month. Yeah. (laughs) 
And we, we um, were actually, our pregnancies were about three and a half weeks apart. So we went through most of our pregnancy thinking we would, um, you know, have a good month at home with one baby before the next one arrived. Um, I was 11 days late, and then we got home from the hospital, and the next morning um, Kate went into labor. So we went right back to the hospital, and they ended up being born, being born um, three days apart. So that was a little unexpected, but I think um, probably my delivery and the stress of being in the hospital and um, having a newborn probably kick-started Kate's labor. So she was 11 days early. So that's how uh, the, the almost twins happened. Possibly my favorite detail in the story was, and probably not your favorite thing to happen, but sorry, uh, was that when Kate was in labor, Emily, your milk came in. It was actually during Kate's delivery. So we were like, I was literally holding her leg back and I felt something wet on my shirt and I looked down and I just had milk streaming from, I had like, of course, a light gray t-shirt on, so it couldn't have been more obvious. Um, but really there was nothing I could do at that point. So uh, just let it go. And then as soon as I could get um, Reed from the waiting room, um, right after Kate, Kate delivered, I went and got him and fed him. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, it was, we were kind of cracking up in the middle of her delivery about that good timing so this is a question that i had immediately upon reading this and it may be a totally naive question um, but i'm super curious about in the process why did you guys decide to use the same donor for each of these kids was it simply that you just liked the idea of them having that biological genetic link were there other reasons yeah and we, um, you know, when we first started the donor search process, we had um, a long list of criteria, including, you know, PhD um, or med school. We wanted him to be, you know, good looking, tall, all this stuff. And then um, we ended up feeling like it was more important for them to be related because we both, you know, at some point wanted to try to have a baby um, and we wanted them to be related. So then the search was narrowed to someone who was um, part Asian and part white so that we both could use them and they'd be mixed and um, then they'd be, you know, half brothers. So we found, you know, there were maybe three donors that matched that criteria and we picked one of them. So that's how we ended up with um, the guy that we lovingly refer to as Keanu. <laughs> you guys described the feeling, um, and I don't know if this feeling persists, that feeling like the baby that you carried is your baby. So if one baby's crying and it's the baby that you had carried, that's like your job to go figure out what's wrong with that baby. And also just feeling maybe more of a sort of natural bond with that child. I'm curious how you have or haven't dealt with that those feelings, if they've dissipated in the time since the piece came out, or if that still persists, which seems really natural to me and understandable. Right. I mean, um, I think, in an, to be honest, it, it still persists. And I think intellectually, we have to sort of that's the biggest challenge that we weren't completely prepared for. Um, you know, obviously when you carry a child for nine months and you deliver, you you have this maternal instinct that kicks in and you feel like I need to take care of this child, you know, before I take care of myself, which also includes before I take care of another baby. Um, and, you know, there are certainly moments of... of the beginning days where you're just sort of in this darkness of trying to stop the baby that you've carried from crying and feeding him. And then for me personally, it's been harder because I'm having a hard time breastfeeding. So I end up being in this sort of darkness of just trying to get enough milk for one baby, let alone trying to think, how do I bond with the other baby? And that's, that's been a harder thing for me. I think Emily, uh, 
um, is has been, has been blessed with a huge product, you know, supply of milk. So she's definitely feeding both babies when when they need to. Um, and I think, you know, she can speak to this. She bonds with them in that way because, you know, they're very happy to be each on her boob. <laughs> right. That's something that comes up in the article a couple of times. I mean, there's this sort of grim comedy as we go through the story. You keep hearing, you know, everything that came easily to Emily came much more difficultly to Kate from from pregnancy to delivery to breastfeeding. And it struck both of us, I think, that it's unique in many ways to you guys, but it's it's a familiar feeling to many parents, the sense that it's easier for other people and you try and restrain your resentment about that. And for parents to whom things do come a little bit easier, you try and not feel guilty about that. Can you talk, both of you, a little bit about how that's manifested in the in the weeks since the babies have been born? I mean, I think, you know, you, you hit it right on there. It's 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 been really hard for me in that, you know, the comparison game that I think – mothers start to play or fathers or parents start to play um, is is exacerbated in our household because I can't just be like, oh, I have a low, you know, milk supply. It's like, oh, I have it. And then I look over and here's my wife just pouring milk out of herself. <laughs> and I, I <laughs> no, it's true. Um, and, and that helps, you know, that certainly plays to my own feeling of like a little bit inadequacy, a little bit more of like, why is it why can't I do that? Um, and, you know, it's, it, uh, all I have to say is, like, you know, it's a good thing that we love each other so much, and, and, and we're so used to this teamwork that I'm sort of slowly coming out of being like, okay, if I can't do this for them, I, need, I should be, feel lucky that my wife can, um, and that's a bonus for me instead of just feeling really sad about it. But, I, you know, no doubt in the pregnancy there were moments where I was like, why do I have to exercise and Emily doesn't? Why can't I eat ice cream and Emily can? And now it just becomes more of like, okay, what, what is best for these guys? And put, trying to put my ego aside is, has been the hardest, hardest part of this. Yeah. What about for you, Emily? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're trying to concentrate on now is being thankful that um, I do have a good milk supply and I can, you know, so we can have two breastfed babies. You know, if, if it was just Kate and she couldn't, then it would, and not that there's anything wrong with formula, but we did really want to um, breastfeed both of the babies. So we can do that. So we're very grateful for that. And, you know, through our pregnancies too, if we both were having really difficult pregnancies, it would have been doubly as hard for us so it was good that you know in some ways when Kate was having a harder time that I could sort of step in and help her a little bit more and that I wasn't having a hard time so you know I mean it it is hard I, I am sad for her you know I do know that she wishes she could breastfeed and it's it it's hard for me to see her hurting because of it um but we're just trying to be thankful that we have a good solution here and and we'll figure it out um going forward Something that Kate said really struck me just now, just that it's it's a good thing you love each other, which I think is something that every – it's like every new parent has felt that at some point, yeah. in, no matter what kind of relationship you're in. True. It's what's kept us going this far, six weeks into it. Yeah. If you're lucky enough to have a partner going through this, you often, you often find yourselves telling each other, oh, right, we love each other. And <laughs> – and there's this moment in the piece where you talk about how the one rule that you've made is that you're not allowed to both freak out at the same time, that that's a rule you've set. And that struck me as like such a great idea for couples of all stripes. How do you stick to that? Well, you know, 
I mean, it's so funny. We we never verbally said that to each other, but it was like an understood thing. Like we, you know, when we both became pregnant, in the beginning it was very easy, but like towards like sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth month, you sort of be like, I can't possibly get upset with you because of what I'm, you know, what I'm going through because you it'll affect you and that. And it should only affect one of us. Um, so I think I think the way we handle that is that I would certainly go and call my sister if I was really upset, or talk to someone else because I didn't I couldn't really talk to Emily about things that I thought were going to stress her out, and I think she was doing the same thing. And we just sort of had that respect for each other that we didn't want to make the other person's pregnancy harder because our pregnancy was, you know, demanding something of us. We also had a lot of moments where, you know, it was like, okay, you go pick this up. And she'd say, no, I'm pregnant. I'd say, well, I'm more pregnant. She'd say, I'm higher risk. So, you know, we had all these little competitions to see who had to do stuff. And Kate usually won. <laughs> now that the babies are here, or I guess during your pregnancy too, but I'm, I'm most curious about now, are there spousal things that you wish you could get from your spouse that you guys just can't get from each other? And then also there must be things that you get from each other that, you know, I never could from my husband. I mean, well, we, you know, and this is a very cliche thing. Like we obviously only, you know, know this through sitcoms or from friends where like, I was really mean to my husband and I told him to go, you know, run to the store and get me this, or, you know, he had to do these errands. Like we obviously don't do that to each other. Like there are moments where I'll be like, uh, we have to do laundry and we just sort of look at each other and it's like, whoever, whoever doesn't need a nap is the person that goes to do the laundry. It's not like, um, it's not like something that we can really expect from the other. Um, so I think those are the kind of things that I think we know if we had a husband who didn't, who wasn't caring. Or a, non, or a non-pregnant We would right. make a lot partner. more demands. So, right, right. so unfortunately the way that plays out is that when we have siblings come to visit us, we have a lot of requests of our siblings. Your siblings should be doing that no matter what. Like that, that's like, that's standard operating <laughs> like procedure. Sure that's... Have you guys come up with a good shorthand way to I was thinking like, you know, there like there are all these there's a Facebook group for twins and there's a there there are ways that families label each other. And how do you like my description of you your situation was like three sentences. Do you have like a good one line? Yeah, I mean we we've been out in public very few times and people have asked us if they're twins and we've said yes. And they look very different, so we've gotten really – they're fraternal, right? You know, you just sort of brush it off and say, yeah, we're going to have to come up with um, exactly what we're going to say to people and what, you know, when the boys are older, what they're going to tell people. Um, I would really like you to tell people that they are twins who were born four days apart. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I did say that to somebody once, and I got a very funny look, and it, you know, prompted a longer story, obviously. And we <laughs> I don't want to so, do yeah. that when we're, you know, in the grocery store or in the mall. Kinda, I think we're going to have to gauge exactly who we're talking to when we when we start to tell our story. But um, that is definitely something that we have to figure out. And I don't know if there is a label that can go on it. It's sort of, you know, we're part, like, part twins, part adoptive parents. So it's, I don't know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how we uh, figure out how to explain this going forward. You're a family. Uh, <laughs> have you reached out to those types of families? Like, for, have you reached out to people who have adopted children or parents of twins? Like, are you looking, are you trying to find some sort of, like, you know, model or cobble together some models? Or are you just like, fuck it, this is, we're, we're trailblazing this? 
We haven't yet, probably because we just haven't had the time to even think about it. Well, we've reached out to parents of twins for help in dealing with right. having two babies. So definitely, like, you know, we have reached out. We have a few friends that have had twins, and so that is more the on the top of our minds where we've been like, how do you do two? How do you feed two? But less about the nature of how um, the families came to be. And, and I don't know if that really is something that we, we – that even comes to our mind because our family is so unique in so many different ways that we only know that. We, are, we have no idea what sort of the norm actually could be, should be. So I think right now we're just looking for, for mothering tips from any anybody. <laughs> One way you guys are really unique is that unlike other every other family that lives in New Jersey, you sound really cool. Thank hey! you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Kate and Emily. The piece is really great. It's called My Wife and I Are Both Pregnant. It's on New York Magazine's website, The Cut. It's super interesting. We'll have a link on our show page. Um, Eddie sounds so cute. Yeah, this was really, this was not, was so there easy. were no freakouts, no tantrums. And now no. I felt like he was going to say something at the end. We're, we're standing, both bouncing, though. You must yeah, know what sure. this looks like with the phone in between us to keep him quiet. <laughs> All right, thank Perfect. you, guys. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Dan. I am recommending today the best game for children that I have played since Ace of Hates, available now at aceofhates.com. It's called Stinker. Yes, that is its name. And it is extremely fun for ages like eight and up, Uh, including, I think, for teens and, in fact, for adults. It is a family game that is, in fact, fun for adults. Um, I would describe it as being like apples to apples and that you are giving funny answers to questions posed by the people you're playing with. But instead of like cards that have the answers pre-written on them, you get like a whole pile of Scrabble tiles. They're, of course, they're not official Scrabble tiles. They're stinker tiles, but they look like Scrabble tiles. Um, and you spell out your answers in front of you. But misspellings and abbreviations and any weird or creative use of the letters is, in fact, not just allowed but encouraged. So even if you're little and are not great at spelling or you're a little uncertain about words, it's a great and fun way to encourage you to play with letters and f- discover all the amazing things that they can do. Wait, it give me really an example. Wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. So, like, what's a question? Sure. I don't get it. What's a question? Okay, so, like, a question might be, what is the worst thing to say at the dinner table. And um, then you have this pile of Scrabble letters in front of you, and you just quickly spell out a funny answer to that question. Okay, got it. So one one thing that we liked about it was that it it gave our kids a way to sort of like exercise and and expand the reach of their senses of humor. So when we first started playing, Harper just answered every question by just spelling but. I was just going to say, I feel like it's how right. many variations of poop are there? Right, but so those didn't win. We didn't choose them. They weren't the funniest answers. And so she started being more creative and coming up with funnier, better answers and trying to think of things that were funny that weren't farts and poop. And it worked. She, like, came up with better, funnier, more creative things. And I enjoyed watching that. Anyways, whatever. It's a very silly game. It's incredibly silly. I don't think it's really educational at all. But it is super-duper fun. My kids really liked it. Uh, I will post a link to it to Stinker on our Facebook page and on the show page. Uh, That sounds great. Allison, what about you? Okay, I'm going to recommend a book uh, called Rad American Women, A to Z, Rebels, Trailblazers, and Visionaries Who Shaped Our History and Our Future. A mouthful. Written by Kate Schatz with terrific illustrations by Miriam Klein-Stahl. 
Uh, this is a great-looking, super colorful, and bold book of mini profiles of 26 awesome, diverse women. Uh, a is for Angela Davis, B is for Billie Jean King, C is for Carol Burnett, and so on. You get it? Uh, the introduction talks about... Wait, I don't get it, Allison. <laughs> Explain further. The introduction talks about what it means to be rad and radical, and it's just a great American history lesson for kids of all genders, uh, but I bought it for my boys, and a corrective to a lot of history textbooks, which often focus on important and powerful men. So take your stinker and get some politics, Dan. Uh, that is really great. I mean, you're, I remember that like a year ago we did a show where we were trying to find like feminist children's books. Yeah. Like, and this is like a great, this is a great example. It's great. And I only knew about actually because somebody posted a picture on Facebook, a friend of mine posted a picture on Facebook of their son reading it in bed. And I was like, yes, my sons need that. Uh, and it's that's really, awesome. it's really good. Okay. That's our show. Please email us at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. If you're in New York or close by and haven't bought your tickets yet for our live show, do it, slate.com slash live. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our intern, Shiva Byatt. Thanks to Jason Gambrell for recording some of today's show. Thanks to our guests, Lana Hall, Kate Alasky, Emily Kay, and Keith Hernandez. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers, and managing producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Allison. And thank you all for listening. Hey, this is Gabriel Roth, and I'm the host of the Slate Serial Spoiler Special. Every week, Slate writer Katie Waldman and I will dig into the latest episode, parsing the latest developments, clues, hints, and ideas, hopefully getting us a little closer to the truth behind the case of Bo Bergdahl. So join us every week after Serial. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.